Psalm 130. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. A song of ascents. Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us go now to our sermon text for today, Luke 7, 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay... He canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You know this about me. I do love how stories convey truth. Of course, the truth of Scripture can and must be presented in a straightforward and factual way. It is important that you know the facts about God. His creation, man, sin, and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is good and right to be taught in a very direct way that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That none is righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. That salvation cannot be obtained through the keeping of the law, Galatians 2.16. 
and that salvation comes only to those who humbly turn from their sins and fall at the feet of Christ the Lord, trusting in Him and in His finished work, that is to say, His life, death, and resurrection for them and in their place. It is important that we teach the truth of Scripture in this straightforward sort of way, and the apostles of Christ do teach these truths very directly in their letters. Consider what Paul says, for example, in Galatians 2:15 through 16. He says, "We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified." As I read that brief text, you probably noticed the repetition. Paul, in a very short amount of space, manages to say that we are not justified by the works of the law three times, and he also manages to mention faith in Jesus as being the only way to be justified before God three times. I think Paul is there in Galatians 2, 15 through 16, trying to make a point. His teaching is there very straightforward and direct. Well, the point I'm trying to make in the introduction to this sermon is that the same truths that Paul and the other apostles make in a straightforward way in their letters concerning salvation through faith in Christ alone and not through obedience to the law is made in Luke's gospel through the story that he tells about the sinful woman who fell at Jesus' feet, the self-righteous Pharisee named Simon and Jesus' rebuke of him. I, I love the way that stories convey truth. Biblical stories like this one have a way of bringing these doctrines to life for us. Uh, truly, the doctrine of salvation through faith in Christ alone does come to life in this beautiful story that is in front of us today. I want to go now to our text and consider it in three parts. First, let us consider the sinful woman who fell at the feet of Jesus in verses 36 through 38 to see what we can learn from her. The scene is set in verse 36. There we read, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. I think this is interesting. Many of the Pharisees were critical of John and Jesus. We've been learning all about that in Luke's gospel. But this Pharisee invited Jesus into his home to eat with him. And so it sounds promising, doesn't it, from the start? On the surface, it appears that this Pharisee was a friend of Jesus, maybe even a follower of Jesus. He invited Jesus into his home and he ate with him. Soon we will learn that He was no true follower of Christ, at least not at this point in his life. And so it is with many who are religious. They have an external appearance of religion. They might even be found dining with the Lord at his table, but there is no heart religion, no true faith in Christ, no true love for him. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here, because we will come to focus on the Pharisee and what we can learn to him for in just a moment. But... For now, our focus is on the sinful woman and what we can learn from her. In verse 37, we read, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, by the way, people sat at tables differently back then than they do today in that culture. They reclined at tables. They didn't sit in them as we do 
uh, with chairs with four legs on them and a back. So he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. And then we read that this woman brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, that is, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is, I think you would agree with me, a very extravagant expression of love. We need to picture this scene and see that here this woman loves Christ greatly. He, she has great appreciation for Him. She expresses her love for Christ extravagantly. I want you to notice a few things about this description. One, we are told that this woman was a sinner. I think we are to take this to mean that she was a notorious sinner in this city. One who violated the seventh commandment as a way of life. Two, notice that her name is not given. Some have guessed that it was Mary Magdalene, but there is really no evidence for that. She is left unnamed, perhaps so as to not amplify the past sins of this dear sister in Christ, whoever she is. Three, we are to see that she clearly knew about Jesus before this moment in time. She knew about Jesus. She had heard about Him. She had already placed her faith in Him. Why else would she have sought Him out? She did so... Uh, and she came prepared, didn't she? She brought a flask of ointment with her. She knew exactly what she was going to do. She had already heard about Jesus. She had already recognized that He was the Messiah. She had placed her faith in Him. And then she comes to express her love and appreciation for Christ in this extravagant way. She must have heard the good news that Christ was the promised Messiah. Perhaps she witnessed His miraculous deeds. Maybe she was one who had been healed by Him of some infirmity. We're not given the details. We're not given the backstory. But one thing we know for sure, she was at some point and in some way called externally by the preaching of the Word and inwardly by the Spirit to place her faith in Christ and to turn from her sins. Why else would she feel compelled to come to Him to express her love and gratitude so extravagantly? For notice that her expression of love was extravagant. She fell at Jesus' feet as he reclined at the table. She was weeping. And we might ask, well, why was she weeping? Given the details of the story, I think it is safe to say that she wept for two reasons. First of all, out of sorrow for her past sin. And secondly, out of a sense of gratitude and joy for the offer of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus the Messiah. And those who have faith in Christ know exactly what it is like to have this, this, this mixture of emotion uh, this strange mingling of emotions, sorrow and joy. At once our tears are tears of sorrow for sin and tears of joy for the forgiveness of sins. And this woman was weeping profusely, so much so that her tears fell to the feet of Jesus. And when they did, she washed Jesus' feet, not with a rag, but with her own hair. If you know anything about women, they, their hair is important to them. And so think of it, this woman, she fell at the feet of Jesus and she began to wash his feet, not with a rag, but with the, her own hair. She kissed his feet. She anointed his feet with ointment. Clearly, this woman was overwhelmed with sorrow for past sin and great joy for the present grace that was shown to her in the face of Jesus Christ. She was humble broken and contrite. She was filled with love and appreciation for the Messiah. She fell at His feet, taking the posture of a lowly servant. She anointed His feet as if to acknowledge the fulfillment of the Scripture that says, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That is Isaiah 52, verse 7. This woman fell at the feet of Jesus uh, as if she was acknowledging the fulfillment of this prophecy. True, beautiful are the feet of everyone who brings good news, even those who proclaim the gospel to this present day. But this prophecy in Isaiah 52 was fulfilled most directly by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the one whose feet are beautiful because He is the one who brings the good news about salvation. And this woman knew it. She fell at His feet. Her tears and her hair washed His feet and she anointed His feet with ointment. Here she expressed her love for Him in a most humble and extravagant way. Of course, the question we are pressed with as we consider this story is, do we have a love like this for our Lord and Savior? Do we have a love like this for our Lord and Savior? Do we love Him extravagantly? Are we overwhelmed with a great sense of emotion because our sins are washed away by Him? Are we overwhelmed with a sense of grief for our sin and joy at the fact that Christ has taken away our sins? Do we serve Him and worship Him extravagantly because we love Him so dearly? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Him saw this, the text says in Luke 7.39, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman This is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I want you to notice that in verse 39, it is revealed to us what this man was thinking. The text says he said to himself these things. One question we should ask is, how do we know what this man was thinking? And the answer is that we know because Jesus knew his thoughts. Jesus knew his thoughts because he is God's prophet and Messiah the eternal Word of God incarnate. The thinking of this man is is revealed to us because Jesus knew his thoughts and has revealed his thoughts to us. And perhaps you have detected the irony in this story. There is irony present here. Apparently this Pharisee invited Jesus over to his house and to sit at his table so that he, the Pharisee, might examine Jesus to see if He really was the prophet of God and the Messiah of God as He claimed. But notice this, Jesus examined Him. He examined even His thoughts and the condition of His heart. And so there is irony here. It is ironic, isn't it? How men and women will pretend to stand in judgment over God and Christ. And yet we know that it is God who will judge men through Christ on the last day. Men in their arrogance and pride will try to put God and Christ on trial. But this is not how things are, really. In fact, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must Give account. So, the Word of God examines us. The the Word of God pierces us and, and divides us and is even able to see and expose the thoughts of our minds and the intentions of our heart. And who is the Word? 
Christ is the Word. And here we see this put on display. This man intended to examine Christ and to stand in judgment over Him, but instead Christ examined this Pharisee and knew even what he was thinking. Christ the Word looked upon this man with a sharp and piercing gaze and discerned even the thoughts and intentions of his heart. There is also irony in this. When this woman came and began to anoint Jesus' feet, the Pharisee said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, etc. And the Pharisee was correct. If this man were a prophet, he would have known, and he did know. He knew exactly what kind of woman this was, who was weeping and washing his feet with her tears. He knew exactly what kind of woman this was, who was anointing his feet with ointment, and he was pleased to allow her to approach him and to touch him like this. He was not repulsed by her. And here is the irony. Not only did Jesus know what kind of woman this was, and allow her to approach him in this way, he also knew the thoughts and intentions of this Pharisee. Well, now that we are inside the head of the Pharisee, I think we should ask the question, what sort of belief system could produce a thought such as this? What sort of belief system could produce a thought such as this? What must this Pharisee have believed to evoke within him feelings of disgust and thoughts of disapproval as he observed this moving scene. By the way, I do hope that you understand that this is how human behavior works. As we live in this world, we perceive things. And as we perceive things, we are constantly making judgments. Is the thing good or is the thing bad? We do this continuously even though we are rarely even mindful of it. We perceive things and we make judgments. And as we make judgments, we are drawn towards that which we perceive to be good and we are repulsed by that which we perceive to be bad. But it is our deeply held beliefs about things like God and man, this world in which we live and eternity, that have a profound and ever-present impact upon our perception of things. We have these deeply held beliefs that are always involved in this process of perceiving and making judgments. This is why two people can consider the exact same thing yet have totally different responses to it. Have you ever experienced this? I know you have. You see it all the time. Two people are looking at the same thing, the same event perhaps, and they have two totally different responses to it. How can this be? Well, the answer is that they believe different things. They hold to important foundational truths and they are different from one another. One may say, that is good and beautiful. The other may say, that is repulsive. And so I do hope that you considered the scene of this sinful woman falling at the feet of Jesus to be beautiful. Isn't it beautiful that she would come to Jesus? Isn't it wonderful that she would turn from sin and and acknowledge Christ as Savior? Is this scene not moving to you? Do you not consider this extravagant expression of love to be a good and beautiful thing? Well, the fact is, this Pharisee was repulsed by what he saw. Truly, he was repulsed by it. He thought it was inappropriate. He thought it was disgusting. He saw it as evidence that this truly isn't the prophet of God. This can't be the Messiah, for the Messiah would never allow sinners like this to approach him. 
he held to some beliefs, didn't he? That produced this response within him. I want to mention only two things. Clearly, this Pharisee thought that if men and women were to draw near to God and to trust in Christ, excuse me, this Pharisee thought that if men and women were to draw near to God and to Christ, then they must earn it through holy living. He must have believed this. Only those who lived a holy life were permitted to draw near to God and to associate with God's servants, with God's prophets. Some people, according to him and according to his way of thinking, were simply too sinful. And they were to be avoided, therefore. They were to be pushed away. Secondly, this Pharisee must have viewed himself as worthy. He must have thought himself to be righteous. He, in his opinion, was holy, and so it was perfectly right for him to have Jesus into his house. It was perfectly right for him to invite Jesus to recline at his table. But this sinful woman, there was no place for her. To put it in theological terms, this Pharisee must have believed in justification by works. He believed that men and women were right with God through their obedience to the law of God. This sinful woman had broken God's law, particularly the seventh commandment. She had done so repeatedly and in such a direct way that there was no room for her. She was to be shut out. But he was a law keeper, or so he thought. Therefore, he was on good terms with God. This man must have believed in justification by works. And he must have also had a very low view of sin, for he thought much of this woman's sin, but he thought very little of his own. He was self-righteous. He was puffed up with pride. And that is why he looked upon this beautiful scene with, with disgust. His mind and heart were twisted. They were filled with false doctrine. And so he recoiled at a scene that he should have been drawn to. The question I think that we are pressed with as we consider the Pharisee is this. Do I have a Pharisaical attitude towards others? Do I look down upon them and despise them, making much of their sin and little of my own? And if so, what are the deeply held false beliefs that produce such a response within me? We will return to this question at the end of the sermon, but for now, let us move on to consider the words of Jesus so that we might learn from Him. In verse 40, we read, And Jesus answering said to him, that is to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Luke tells us that Jesus answered the Pharisee even though the man never said anything. He spoke within himself, remember? So Jesus answered the man's thoughts with these words. Thankfully, the Lord does the same thing with us today. By His grace, He will answer even our errant thoughts by His word and correct them. Notice that Jesus called the Pharisee by his name. Simon, I have something to say to you, he said. We don't know anything about this Simon. I do wonder what became of him, though. Don't you wonder what became of him? We don't know. I think we should acknowledge the possibility that he himself became a disciple of Jesus. Maybe he did. We don't know, but it is certainly possible. For not only is Jesus able to forgive the sins of a harlot, he is also able to forgive the sins of a self-righteous Pharisee too. We should not forget that. Here we see that Jesus is in His house. Here is Jesus calling Him by His name. 
and bringing truth to him, perhaps the calling was effectual. And I suppose we will only find out in eternity. Jesus spoke to Simon, saying, I have something to say to you. And brothers and sisters, Christ says the same thing to us every time we open his word, doesn't he? Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, insert your name there. John, Robin, Barbara, Joe. I've picked those names at random, so don't take offense to this. I have something to say to you. And what should our response be? The, The response of Simon was actually pretty good. Say it, teacher. Perhaps a better response would be to say, Say it, Lord. Say it, my Savior. Jesus' words to Simon are are really marvelous. He addressed the false belief that I mentioned earlier, the ones that prompted the abhorrent thoughts in his mind. But Jesus corrects the false beliefs and brings truth to this man by way of a parable. I want you to listen to the parable starting at verse 41. It's very brief. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? That is the question that Jesus asks at the end of this parable. Which of these will love the moneylender more? There are a few observations to make about this parable. One, I want you to notice that there are three characters in this parable. A moneylender and two debtors. Two, Notice that the debtors have a few things in common. One, they both owe money to the same lender. That is important to notice. Two, they both owe a lot of money. A denarius was a piece of money worth about a day's wages for a common worker, so it's not difficult to calculate how much these debtors owed. Both of them owed a lot, but one of them owed a lot more than the other. One owed 50 denarii, And the other owed 500. So one was about a month and a half's worth of wages in debt. That's a lot of money. And the other was a year and a half worth of wages in debt. That's really a lot of money. And here is the last thing that they have in common. And I think this is a very important observation. Both of them were unable to pay. Neither of them had the ability to pay back their debt. The third observation to make about this parable is is the very surprising and unusual thing that the moneylender does. When these debtors could not pay, this moneylender canceled the debt of both. Other English translations render the Greek in this way, he freely forgave them both, that is the New King James Version, or he graciously forgave them both, that is the New American Standard Version. And so this is shocking. This is meant to surprise us, for this is not how moneylenders are expected to behave. Moneylenders do not simply forgive debts, do they? It sounds absurd to us, or at least it should. They'll do whatever they have to do to get their money back with interest. But this moneylender is gracious and kind. He forgives both of their debts. And clearly this parable is meant to communicate the truth about sin and salvation. The moneylender is God. In general, the two debtors represent all of humanity. All stand before God guilty. All are in debt to Him as sinners. Yet some have sinned more than others. That is true. They are therefore in greater debt. 
To use the language of Paul from Romans 2.5, some by their excessive sin and the hardness of their heart have stored up for themselves wrath on the day of judgment. But I want you to pay very careful attention to this part of the parable. No one is able to pay the price. Neither of them are able to repay, and this does stand for the condition of all humanity before God. All are indebted to Him, and no one is able to settle the debt that they have with God. All are in this same predicament. All are in this same position. No one is able to pay the price. No one is able to settle the debt. In general, these two debtors represent all of humanity, but in particular, they represent the woman who had sinned more and the Pharisee who had sinned somewhat less. And I want you to see how this little parable was aimed at the two false beliefs buried deep within the mind and heart of this Pharisee that caused him to look with disgust at this woman who fell weeping at the feet of Jesus. This parable, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and it's, it's, it's directly, directed so precisely at these false beliefs held within the mind and heart of this Pharisee. The Pharisee thought, if men are to stand right before God, then they must keep His law. This woman is a lawbreaker, therefore she is not worthy to come to God, nor is she worthy to touch the feet of God's prophet, if indeed Jesus is God's prophet. That is what he thought. But Jesus set this man straight by teaching him that all are debtors. None is righteous, no, not one. And there is no way for men to pay off the debts they owe to God. No amount of future obedience or future good will cancel the debt of past sins, nor fix the problem of inward corruption and imputed guilt. The only hope for men and women is to have their debts graciously canceled or forgiven by God. And where is this forgiveness found? Where is this forgiveness found? It is found at the feet of Jesus. This Pharisee thought of himself as righteous. But by this parable, Jesus made it very clear that he too was a guilty sinner. He was in debt to God. Granted, he had not lived in, in blatant and open sinful rebellion as this woman had for so many years. Nevertheless, his debt before God was still very great, and he also was unable to repay it. And so if he wished to stand right before God, if there was any hope for him to stand guiltless before his Maker, it would have to be through forgiveness, the gracious cancellation of his debt. In other words, the Pharisee would have to come to God in the same way that this sinful woman came. He too would have to fall at the feet of Jesus, having turned from his sin and having acknowledged the need for the Savior. For it is through faith in Jesus that our sinful debts are canceled, for God has canceled them through His suffering on the cross. And it is through faith in Jesus that His righteousness is imputed to us, a righteousness that He has obtained through His obedience in the whole of life. I want you to notice this also. After Jesus told the parable to Simon the Pharisee, he asked him a question. It is found at the end of verse 42. Now which of them, the one who was forgiven little or the one who was forgiven much, will love the gracious moneylender more? Simon answered, The one, I, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. 
The word judged grabs my attention. The Pharisee was judging the woman and Jesus in his mind just a moment before, but he was judging wrongly. His theology was all messed up. Therefore, his perceptions, his thoughts, and his judgments were all messed up. But Jesus set him straight with the parable, and now he judges rightly. You have judged rightly, Jesus says. And it was the truth of the Word of God that helped him to judge rightly. I'm also reminded of what Jesus said in that Sermon on the Plain. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. The Pharisee had judged wrongly in the past, but now he is beginning, at least, to judge rightly, having encountered the Word of God. But the question Jesus asked was about love, wasn't it? Now, which one of them will love more? Which one of them will love more? Will the one who is forgiven much or little love more? The Pharisee was right to say, the one who was forgiven much. Verse 44, Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. What do these words mean exactly? Does Jesus mean to say that a person who comes to faith in Christ, let's say at a young age, who has lived a relatively good life, will be incapable of loving Christ greatly, given that they have been forgiven little, uh, relatively speaking, that is to say, compared to others who have perhaps lived for a longer period of time in sin and who have sinned notoriously. Is that what Jesus means? Does He mean that those who have lived a relatively good life and have been forgiven by Christ will not be able to love in this extravagant way, in the way that this notorious sinful woman loved? Conversely, does he mean that it is only those who have lived a life full of sin and immorality and then, having placed their faith in Christ and having been forgiven of all of that great sin, will be able to love Him with a deep and profound love? That is not what Jesus means. This is about perception, friends. That is what this is about. The truth of the matter is that we have all sinned against God. We stand guilty before Him and carry around a large debt that we can never repay. That is true of all of us by nature. Granted, some have sinned more than others, but it is those who are aware of the greatness and severity of their sins and of what their sins deserve who will love God and Christ greatly when they see that their debts have been canceled through faith in the Savior that God has provided, given His life, death, and resurrection. This is about perception. So I am asking you, do you see it? Do you perceive the fact that you are a guilty sinner before God, considered in and of yourself. Do you see it? Do you perceive it? This woman was right to fall at the feet of Jesus and to express her love and appreciation for Him in an extravagant way. But it would have been right for the Pharisee to do the very same thing. Though he had lived a morally upright life in comparison to others, 
Though he had been religiously devout, though he loved God's law, or at least claimed to, though he strove to keep it perhaps all the days of his life, maybe even from childhood, the right thing for him to do when Jesus came to sit at his table would have been to weep at the feet of Jesus just as this woman did and to anoint his feet with ointment, you see. It would have been right for him to do so. What was the problem, though? What differentiated this woman from this Pharisee? It was not that one had sinned and the other had not. It was that one had, had sinned and she knew it. She knew herself to be a sinner. But we are to contrast this with the Pharisee who was also a great sinner, who could not repay the debt that he owed to the Lord and he did not know it. He did not perceive himself in this way and therefore he stood back in judgment over Christ the Lord. And when this moving scene played out right in front of him, it disgusted him. He was so bent out of shape, theologically speaking, he could not even see the beauty of the scene that unfolded right before his eyes. Before we move to the conclusion of our text, I, I must draw your attention to the order of things. This woman loved much. Why? Because she was forgiven much. She was not forgiven much because she loved much. We must take note of the order of things. This woman loved much because she was freely forgiven much. She was not forgiven much because she loved much. The entire flow of the passage is very clear about this. The woman's extravagant expression of love for Christ, her falling at His feet, her tears, her washing His feet with her own hair, and the anointing of His feet with ointment, was a demonstration of her faith in Him and of her love for Him, because she knew that through Him her debts before God were canceled. She heard that He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She believed that He was. She placed her trust in Him, and being moved by a sense of gratitude, she expressed her love and appreciation for Him in this way. Stated in yet another way, when Jesus spoke to the woman in verse 48 saying, Your sins are forgiven, it was not because of the love that she showed. On the contrary, her debts were canceled by the free grace of God. Her debts were graciously forgiven. The love that she showed for Jesus was the response to the love and grace that He first extended to her. She heard of it through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Having been called inwardly, she believed in this gospel. And then she came prepared to fall at the feet of Jesus to show Him this honor. Friends, we love God because He first loved us. And we can never distort the order of things here. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. That is John, 1 John 4, 19. Verses 49 through 50 bring our passage to a conclusion. There we read, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three brief remarks need to be made about these verses. One, that it was the woman's faith in Jesus that saved her and not the works she performed is explicitly stated in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Two, the command of Christ to go in peace is more than a formality. Truly, having your sins forgiven brings peace to the soul, does it not? 
To have your sins forgiven by God brings peace to the soul. To be at peace inwardly, one must be at peace with God. And apart from faith in Christ, we are not at peace with God. We are at enmity with Him. It is no wonder then that we lack inward peace. But to be at peace with God through faith in the Redeemer He has provided for us brings peace to the soul. And all who know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior understand what this means. They have experienced this peace inwardly. Peace in the soul. Because through faith in Christ there is peace with God. Three, those who sat around the table with Jesus were right to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? This is to remind us of the question the scribes and the Pharisees raised earlier in Luke's gospel. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this one who speaks blasphemies? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is Luke 5, 21. They were certainly correct in their belief that God alone can forgive sins. This is true. But they were wrong in their assessment of Jesus. They failed to recognize that Jesus is no mere man. He is the Lord's Messiah. Indeed, He is God incarnate, the eternal Word, who took to Himself a true human body and reasonable soul. This is why He could speak to the sinful yet repentant and believing woman, saying, Your sins are forgiven you, and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me conclude now with a couple of very brief suggestions for application. And, and brothers and sisters, application is something you must do. You must do this, friends. You must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, reflect upon what you have heard uh, through the preaching of God's Word and then apply it to your life. You must, you must allow it to change the way that you think and feel and speak and act. But here are two suggestions. Firstly, we must be sure to avoid the outlook and attitude of this Pharisee. He should have rejoiced exceedingly to see a sinner turn from her sins and to bow at the feet of Jesus the Messiah. But instead he looked down on her condemningly, thinking that she was not worthy to touch the feet of Jesus. But pay careful attention. His bad attitude and his bad judgments were the natural result of bad theology. If someone is lacking in their love for God and their fellow man, it is not because they have too much theology. It is likely because they have poor theology or too little theology. Jesus corrected this man's bad attitude and incorrect judgments by correcting his understanding of God, man, sin, and salvation. So then I am exhorting you, brothers and sisters, to fill your mind. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word. Believe these truths in the heart and see if your heart is not filled with more and more love for God and others. Certainly the self-righteous and judgmental attitude of the Pharisees will not be able to live for long in one who understands the severity of their own sin and the marvelous grace of God that has been extended to them in the gospel. Secondly, I do urge you to contemplate your sin, the wisdom of God's plan of salvation, and the great love that God has shown to you in Christ Jesus. I encourage you to think upon these things and, and grow in your understanding and faith so that your love for Christ would grow and grow, moving you to fall at His feet and express your love for Him extravagantly as this sinful woman did. She was saved by the grace of God and, and she knew it and she loved the Lord extravagantly as a response to this. You know, I've watched plenty of people over the years make a show of religion for a brief time only to fizzle out. 
Perhaps you have seen this too. They fizzle out because their hearts were never truly captivated by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's why. Their hearts were never truly captivated by the love of God shown to them in Christ Jesus. They might have appeared to be religious for a time, kind of like this Pharisee. But they did not love their Lord and Savior. They did not see Him as being beautiful and glorious in the way that this woman did. They fizzle out because their hearts were never truly captivated by the love of God in Christ Jesus. But I've known others who seem to be religious. But when you look close, you see that there is no love in them. They are like the Pharisees. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. 2 Timothy 3.5 I've also been blessed to know many true believers who have been constant in the faith. And do you want to know what is true of all of them? They know they are sinners saved by grace. They are humble, broken, and contrite people. And yet they are filled with love, joy, and peace. This is because they know they are forgiven by Jesus. They love Jesus truly because they see Him as the wonderful Savior that He is. And so they respond by worshiping Him constantly and extravagantly too. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that we would grow more and more in our understanding of the Word of God and of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that as our minds are transformed by the Word of God, that our hearts would be transformed as well, that our hearts would be full and overflowing of love for You and for Christ Jesus our Lord. God, I do pray that You would help us to respond in obedience to You, O Lord. May we fall at the feet of Jesus and may we worship. May we worship corporately with hearts filled with love and overflowing. May we also worship you from day to day as we live in a way that is pleasing to you, O God, in obedience to all of your commandments. God, you are kind to us and we acknowledge it. And your plan of salvation to save us in this way by the word of God becoming incarnate, by his suffering, his, his life, his death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension. What a marvelous plan. O Lord, help us to understand it and to appreciate it more and more all the days of our life. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray these things. And all of God's people say, Amen.